Hi, everyone. Welcome to Meet the Rocketopolis. I'm Miss Like Rocketopolis. And I'm Lance Rocketopolis. And today is part two of our discussion of age gap relationships. So just as a refresher, in part one, we provided an overview of age gap relationships, which included some statistics showing that significant age gaps between partners were not generally accepted by society at large. And we also saw that age gaps where the woman was older were even less socially acceptable than age gaps where the man was older. We also talked about the psychologist Eric Erickson's theory of life stages and potential problems as well as benefits that are associated with couples where the partners are in different life stages. So in this episode, we'll talk about generational differences in age gap relationships, and we'll also discuss issues pertaining to power and power exchange in these types of relationships. And just to be clear, of course, the reason why we're talking about generations is to find more slave husbands and create successful relationships with them. And I decided to focus on millennials as my target population for slave husbands. So generational theory and generational studies have been around since the early 1950s. The founder of generational studies is Carl Mannheim, who was an early sociologist. He founded the subfield of macrosociology which focuses on things like systems and large social structures. This type of research is very much big picture. And I love it. I love big picture reasoning, to be honest. But its value as a field of knowledge is limited by how abstract it is. Macro sociology tends to be highly theoretical, and its claims are hard to verify, it strikes me as a kind of intellectual megalomania, which I can somewhat relate to on a personal level. But I'm also skeptical of how helpful it can really be to humanity as a field of inquiry when it's at that level of abstraction. But, you know, it's soothing to be able to feel like we understand what's going on around us on a large scale especially when it comes to understanding other people and why they do the crazy shit that they do. So today there are four major generations that microsociologists study, boomers, Xers, millennials, and Gen Z. And then on the opposite sides of those generations, you have Gen Alpha, which is already coming up fast and sassy. And there's the silent generation, which is ambling into the sunset. Actually, I just want to point out, though, that my mother-in-law, who is 85, has a boyfriend who is also 85. Her husband died when she was 78, and her boyfriend was actually her peer grief counselor. You know, how's that for pickup artistry? But they have been together for about five years. Yeah. Didn't she meet him like less than a year after he died, her her husband died? 
Yeah, she met him, I think, within the year because he was her grief counselor. But I think it was after two years that they started going out. (laughs) One of the weird things about that is that his biography is very close to my late father-in-law's biography. Like They both went to divinity school. They both lived in San Francisco at the same time. They look a lot alike. Hmm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So you've noticed some patterns developing here. (laughs) But it's not like, you know, they live in New York City or L.A. or something. I mean, they both live in the same small city in Colorado. Good for her. I mean, it's very exciting to think that at that age, you can start a new relationship. It's also kind of slutty. (laughs) Which I also admire. So Lance and I are Xers. We were born between 1965 and 1980. According to a variety of sources, growing up in our generation is associated with parents divorcing, latchkey kids, feminism, and so the kids just have to fend for themselves after school. We're the MTV generation, which is awesome. I loved MTV so much. And we are also the parents of millennials and of Gen Z. You mentioned MTV. (laughs) I I loved how it started, but not what it devolved to. You also mentioned divorce. My parents didn't divorce until I was in college. So while they fought constantly, and that was stressful in and of itself, I don't consider myself a child of divorced parents. It's interesting to know, but I really wasn't conscious about everyone calling Gen Xers jaded nihilist, but um, I can definitely see it now. Yeah. And like, again, I wasn't into it at the time at all. They were annoying. We, (laughs) we were annoying (laughs) and I didn't dig the slacker thing at all. I also at the time was 50% sure that the world was going to end in the year 2000. (laughs) I I had a really strong millenarian attitude going on. It didn't end, thankfully. So that's good. So I do associate Gen X, at least Gen X back in the 90s, as cynical, fatalistic, nihilistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think of the thought that that comes from living and growing up in the nuclear age and, you know, all the political scandals of the 1960s and 70s. Yeah, I mean, possibly. I think that that certainly holds water. The boomers also came of age at the height of the nuclear age, and they're known for their peace activism and idealism in general. So I think a lot of Gen X's cynicism and nihilism came from watching the boomers essentially abandon their ideals in the 80s. The boomers were the yuppies, and the yuppies were horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember the yuppies? Um, I I actually wanted to be a yuppie, but (laughs) never really succeeded. (laughs) So yes, I definitely remember the yuppies. It seems like you want to be a yuppie now. I don't think so. You like really want to get into art and wine and you know and the finer <laughs> things of life, right? That's one of the first things that I saw on your profile that 
you had a strong appreciation for the finer things in life. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't see that as being yuppie. I see like following trends, wearing certain clothes and being stylish in as as being a yuppie. I see. I'll just let that one go. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. So also Xers, for me anyway, are very associated with postmodernism. Postmodernism really started in the 50s, but it got really popularized in the 80s. And I was in grad school in the 90s, and there was a lot of talk about postmodernism. It was trendy among the cool kids in the 80s, and then in the 90s, it was just everywhere. We were very aware in that period of the difference between reality and representation, but we were cynical about it. Many of us embraced surface representation as the only true version of reality. I personally did not do that. Again, I was not happy with that part of my education and the culture that was around me. I hated the implied and stated nihilism. I was very earnest in my late teens and early 20s. In grad school, I was just kind of like blindsided by all the theory. It wasn't until after grad school that I kind of began to understand what was going on there. Because like right around the turn of the century was when my formal education kicked in and my college education finally kicked in. And I started learning about rhetoric. And it was really having to teach rhetoric and having to learn about rhetoric in order to teach it that I began to sort of piece together the philosophical stuff that had been going on around me. I started to appreciate what was going on with Gen Xers outside of academia as well. Many of them swapped their nihilism for ambition. That was the short-lived dot-com boom in the early aughts. And I knew a lot of people in tech at that time. And in fact, I worked for one of those dot-com companies <laughs> that didn't last very long because there was a small recession after the dot-com boom. And that really chastened the Xers. It was a huge splash of cold water. And then you had amazing cell phones coming up, and that just blew everything out of the water. So when they first entered the adult world, millennials often faced a slew of criticism from older adults in the workplace and in media and in society in general. And I'm being vague deliberately because I don't want to re-traumatize these poor kids. Yeah, sometimes they're called Gen Y. They were basically children of the baby boomers and older Gen Xers. Millennials were born between 1981 and 1996. They were the first generation to fully use the internet. They are sometimes called digital natives. They were also weighted down by student debt and childcare costs. They also had to start their career in the middle of that downturn that you mentioned in the economy in the, um, in the 2000s. The dot-com bust was shortly after 2001, if I'm recalling correctly. They also came into the world at a time of declining birth rates across the globe. In the United States, millennials are sometimes called echo boomers, and that's attributed to the large population of the boomers who were born generally 
in the 1950s after World War II. So 30 years later, there's another noticeable blip in the birth rate during the 1980s and 1990s. Calling them echo boomers is like a terrible slander against them because they <laughs> hated the boomers. Uh-huh. So you do work with a lot of millennials. How do you find them as coworkers and as people who you have to manage? I find them to be like normal people. In the 2010s, I worked with a lot of people in their early 20s. I found them to be very industrious and ambitious, smart and capable. How did they behave toward people of older generations? In my experience, just fine. No real big conflicts with older generations. And that's because that older generation was typically their managers and bosses. So any conflicts that I can think of were one-offs. Probably due to mental issues, I do recall one experience when I lived in Tampa. This young woman that we hired just freaked out at an older senior engineer. So for the last 20 years or so, there's been a lot of negativity about millennials from people in older generations. And then when the millennials started to grow up, a lot of us were truly shocked by how very different they were from us, us being Gen X, the tweeners, and boomers. I think most millennials are aware of how critical the earlier generations were of mainstream millennials. But at this point, as far as I'm concerned, that situation is water under the bridge. So I'll just say that many people from mine and earlier generations were shocked by how different the millennials seem to be. And I did encounter a lot of talk about generational differences when I started teaching. So at the start of every school year, the faculty would get a document in our mailboxes that summarized the traits of the incoming freshman class. I think this probably came from like the American Association of Professors or something like that, but it came every year from some outside source. And the list was always mostly positive, mostly upbeat. But it would also reference things like widespread use of new technology and occasionally more serious issues like the rise in mental illness on campus. One year, I remember attending a professional development meeting about millennials. And the centerpiece of the meeting was a video created by students at another large public university. And it was basically a group of maybe 30 students sitting in a lecture hall, silently holding up signs that provided bits of information or like factoids about their experience of being college students. I remember one sign said something like, we read less than 10% of what we're assigned to read. Another one said something like, we are on our phones 85% of the time we're in class. And what was striking about the video at the time was that it wasn't a mea culpa, right? It wasn't an admission of guilt or an apology for being so ungrateful. It was an accusation. 
the video was essentially calling out the faculty for being boring, for not being engaging enough. And so after the video was over, most of the faculty in the room were incensed. And I think that that's fair. The word entitlement, of course, kept popping up over and over. But at one point, my boss, who was the director of my department, mentioned kind of offhandedly that the core of entitlement is fear. And I think what they were afraid of was not belonging, basically not being cared about. In this case, not being welcomed into essentially the life of the mind. And they really weren't being welcomed. These days, outside of small, very expensive liberal arts colleges, most college students really have to fend for themselves, which is what the millennials did. They created their own worldviews, their own aesthetics, their own value systems, basically all of their own cultural resources. That is so surprising to me because... When I first went to the University of Florida, which is one of those mega schools with tens of thousands of students, and I did feel like that, um, I don't think at that point I would have had the guts to be so open and contemptuous about it. So that's really, really shocking. It really was. But you may have had a very different kind of college experience than the millennials were having because. The academic world had changed. Mm. And I don't know that for sure, but certainly part of it is that Publisher Parish really disincentivized professors for putting much effort into teaching. At a big R1 university, all of their prospects are based on their publishing. And that had been true for a while. And I think also maybe part of the difference between our experience and the millennials' experience and our kind of shock at that type of behavior, like what was going on in that video, um, is that we just, we were okay with the way that universities worked. If it was all about publish or perish, we didn't give a shit. It was on us to learn. You know, we were responsible for our own learning. And if we had a boring teacher, that was just to be expected. So I think it's a combination of both of those things, maybe, because certainly the sort of personal divestment of the professoriate from the students was definitely real. My overall point is that to the extent that there are significant differences between generations, we need to be able to maintain at least a degree of cultural continuity. And that requires older generations to embrace or at least acknowledge the need for change, and also to see how that change isn't random. Previous generations set the stage for it. But just to circle back for a moment, to use a heinous piece of jargon, I have noticed that the millennials are much more welcoming to Gen Z than Gen X was to the millennials, even when Gen Z is behaving at its worst, which is actually pretty bad. But that's just when they're at their worst. Being at your worst should not be what other people are choosing to define you by. Mm -hmm. We've been talking a lot about differences 
Actually, you found an interesting source that stated pretty much the opposite. It's an article that we found on Ipsos titled Data Dive, Gen X Myths versus Realities. They are a French marketing research firm that polled over 23,000 people from around the world on a wide range of topics, including views on transgender, care for teenagers, views on religion, trustworthiness of the government, and their personal financial outlook. They found that there are very small differences with Gen Zers and Gen Xers and even boomers. Gen Zers support trans rights the most, but only by a 7% difference from Gen Xers. Regarding trusting the government, only one in five people do that, and there was only a 3% spread. And regarding religion, there was a consensus across the generational board, with almost half the people polled saying that religion does more harm than good. That had about a 4% spread. But all these age comparisons for all these questions were, like I said, just within a few percentage points of each other. Yeah, that's surprising and heartening. The idea that all of this generational stuff is just trumped up unnecessarily. Right. It's like confirmation bias. It's like your experience is confirming what the overall perception is. So finally, we get to talk about power and power exchange. Because according to many of our sources, the age-related power differential in age gap relationships seems to be the most common issue that people have with these types of relationships, especially when it comes to younger women and older men. Over the last few years on FetLife, I've seen a huge amount of derision and condemnation around age gap relationships in general, and especially from a specific sector of 20 to 30-something submissive women. And a lot of those women have also been very strident in their condemnation of kinky power exchange in general. And then they're also like very, quote unquote, woke, right? Like they're all really super into politics, gender issues. And they also have tended to be pretty sex negative in general. But actually, I'm now beginning to see the pendulum starting to swing back. A couple of days ago, I got an update from some random person on my feed, and she was complaining about another member complaining about dick pics, right? The person on my feed was complaining about other people complaining about dick pics. She was like, this is a kink site, for fuck's sake. Why are you even here? And that was something that I probably have said on this podcast a few times. And the woman was complaining about this bullshit virtue signaling. So we'll conclude with a quote from a 2023 article in Vogue magazine. So here's the quote. Perhaps we're so fascinated by age gap relationships because it's easy to assume that there will be exploitation and imbalances of power at a higher frequency. It appears that in a society in which we are taught how to acquire, possess, and own 
before we are taught to love and liberate. There are submerged dynamics of power and exploitation in many relationships, regardless of the age of the participants. In relationships where people are concerned with liberation, freedom, and respect, perhaps an age gap doesn't matter, end quote. So even though the article is critical of age gap relationships overall, I really like this quote for a couple of reasons. First, because it acknowledges that power exists in relationships regardless of age and age gaps, but most importantly, because it acknowledges the human fascination with power. And I think that that fascination itself may be necessary for BDSM-based power exchange to work. Otherwise, the whole enterprise would be just way too tedious. Do you agree with that, Lance? Yes, absolutely. I mean, everyone always strives for equality in relationships, but that's not acknowledging what's actually happening in reality and in what certain people like us want to happen in our relationships. So that's definitely true. Yeah, and it's never a dull so this concludes our discussion of age gap relationships, at least until we find actual younger slave husbands to put on the podcast. In our next episode, we'll be focusing on how to craft a kinky worldview in a TPE relationship and how to deploy it strategically in social and interpersonal relationships. So until then, have a great week. Thank you.